Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, everyone, to part two of the 16th century Poland series. Last week's was fascinating, where you gave an in-depth look and feel of how life was for the Jews at that time. And this week, we're going to continue into a different subject, but at the same time. Yes, in other words, I'd like to introduce the two greatest Ashkenazi halakhic authorities of the 16th century, we will get to the two greatest Svardi halachic authorities, uh, Rabbi of Karo and the Radfaz, in a future series. All four of them were very much intertwined and overlapping, and they all died within a three-year period, actually. But of the two for today, one is a household name in every Orthodox home, the Rama, Ramosha Isilis. His shul, the uh, Matseva, the grave, are still there in Poland, are probably the most visited Jewish sites in the country outside of Auschwitz itself. And his main sefer is in every house. The second individual is the Marshal, known to any student of the Talmud. And in both cases, their impact is not confined to their writings, but equally to the fact that their pupils were the main teachers of Torah for the next half century in Europe. And because their focus was halacha, I would like to share more than simply a biography, but also some of their halachic decisions. Some are very timely. They relate to particular questions that arose as a result of what was going on, and some are almost timeless. They are the bedrock of Jewish law to this day. And next week, we will look at the printing of the famous Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, which occurred during their lifetime. And the two that we will discuss had very different views on the matter, to put it mildly. So the Marshal is Rav Shlomo Luria, born in 1510, died in Lublin in 1573, where his grave also stands. And he was first the Rav in Brisk, and then after his father-in-law of Clonimus from Ostroha, moved to Rishalayim to become the head of the community of Ashkenazim there. So the marshal took the position and eventually then became a Rosh Hashiva in Lublin in 1555. Now, defining the marshal is quite simple because there is a singular definition. There's no difference between his attitude to theoretical areas of teaching, to practical decision-making in halacha, and to his personal behavior. They are all the outcome of analysis and examination, 
intellectual rigor and unvarnished truth. It didn't matter who he was talking to or about. He would never sort of roll over and say fine unless there was adequate reason. And that meant in relationships with his colleagues, he never gave flattery or excessive praise to anyone, which didn't win him any friends, because he was a person of complete correctness. Sounds like brisk. <laughs> yes. So rigor and truth also meant that he didn't accept opinions which had been written by the Rishonim hundreds of years earlier if it was shown that they had simply relied on precedent. You know, prove your case or move on. And this approach of scrutiny was also used by him to analyze whether the text of the Talmud or Rashi or Tesfus was accurately printed, or maybe it had been corrupted by non-Jewish printers along the way. In other words, the 1500s is the first time that texts are being mass-produced, and the printing operations are not always run by Jews, as we will see more of next week, and therefore numerous errors were introduced. Deliberately? Well, not generally. I mean, if you think about it, the Talmud is almost one and a half thousand pages, and it's not in Hebrew, it's basically in Aramaic, so no one can read it unless they know it. And therefore, the Marshal's Chochmas Shlema has hundreds of amendments, a word here or there, a phrase, and, you know, anybody who's learning the Talmud is making use of it. So we owe him an enormous debt of gratitude, which is pretty much unacknowledged. And, you know, it's interesting, no one when they're learning asks, why is it that the Marshal particularly did this work? Um, but the truth is, you needed a combination of things in order to pull it off. Firstly, expertise in various manuscripts or editions of the Talmud. Secondly, you needed encyclopedic knowledge, because you have to know when you're looking at a statement in the Talmud, does it actually make sense? And finally, you need broad shoulders. You know, somebody who wouldn't say, well, you know, I'm not sure if this is quite right, which I guess most rabbis today would do because he is in a different league. The Marshal quotes an enormous range of Svarim. And once again, this underscores the fact that before he came to any decision about a text or a question, he had done due diligence. And he also had, you know, access to libraries, the footnotes that Rupiakov Pollock had written. And all of this characterizes his approach to life, which is appropriate inspection. And on a daily basis, he had someone come to him to give him Musar to ensure that his personal life followed the intellectual path that he had mapped out. Incredible. What did he write other than responsa? So the Yamshal Shlema is a commentary on the Talmud, and uh, there are originally 16 tractates covered, but we only have seven, the response, as you mentioned. But towards the end of his life, he spent time editing and correcting the Nusachat exactly how and what we say, 
And in fact, the early printed prayer books rely quite heavily on his opinion, the early Sidurim. And unusually, he wrote Zmiris, both for Shabbos and Matzah Shabbos. Did any of them make their way into our Siddur today? No, not really. No. It's a shame. Yes. Yeah. Saw an essay recently containing the, the Zmiris, but no. Mm. And now he had strong views when it came to making halachic decisions, in other words, very solid views, and that had practical ramifications in the area of accepting non-Jews as converts. You'd think pretty straightforward, but in most countries in Europe, it was a capital crime for Jews to do so. And his opinion was that anyone who's part of it is needlessly endangering his life. And that, you know, the situation of the Jews was difficult amongst the nations of the world, that's how he put it, and therefore we shouldn't be looking for trouble by accepting new people into our fold in times of danger. And he took a very strong line on Moisrim, people who were public informers, which we touched on last week, and you wanted to know more about that. So when they endangered Jewish life, he wrote that halachalamaisa, in other words, as a practical ruling, that these people can be done away with permanently. In fact, he meant only permanently. He writes that don't injure them, which he has heard takes place in Poland by doing things like cutting out their tongue, as all this will do is increase their hatred and increase the problem. Although that does fit in halachically with if someone comes to kill you, one can sort of kill them first. Yes, it's just not something that you necessarily think about. In the rabbinic or communal field, in other words, uh, people who were unqualified to be doing the job they were, yes. Uh, But when it came to the individual Jew, so, you know, he is particularly concerned for the financial situation that many Jews in Poland found themselves in. He writes that single men can't afford to get married, and therefore he even allowed weddings to take place in the week in which Tishabov falls to deal with this, you know, sort of necessity. And he praises, he writes with admiration, the Jews who made a living in the manufacture of wine who were severely inconvenienced by the halachas, the laws that forbid the wine to be handled by non-Jews. And he says that Polish Jews strictly adhered to these laws when it was, you know, transported by non-Jews. They had to rely on them. Jews had to rely on non-Jewish drivers, so to speak, to ship the wine which they'd manufactured, and there was always the fear that they might break the seals and make the wine non-kosher. And he contrasts the behavior of Polish Jews with Jews in Germany, who he says were not so careful, and on occasion, not only from an economic perspective, but they drank wine and ate food prepared by non-Jews with a sort of a cursory look at the kitchen in these inns and he says that you know they criticize people who eat and drink 
only kosher products, but sits without a head covering. And they criticise and ostracise these people. But actually, it's a far lesser wrong because he was looking at behaviour from a halachic, you know, sort of almost truth-based perspective. And in areas of divorce, so you cannot get divorced against the will of either of the two parties. From the woman's perspective, it's rabbinic. From the man's perspective, it's biblical. And therefore, you know, there quite some effort was put in to help women who needed a divorce to get one. And the Marshall deals, for instance, with a woman who claimed her husband had violated Jewish law. And therefore, she couldn't tolerate being married to somebody who had no um, regard for Judaism. And the Marshall distinguishes between somebody who sins against Judaism, which he doesn't say is a sufficient cause of divorce, and one who sins against his wife, which is sufficient cause to force her husband to release her, as was desertion. He said if a husband deserts his wife, that is sufficient cause to force the husband to divorce. And a certain scholar used a business trip as an excuse to run away from home, and the marshal threatens him with excommunication unless he, you know, does truva, unless he goes back and goes back to his, his family. He also has a, a lengthy and far-reaching response on the use of solar energy for cooking on Shabbos, which he permits, and had a very interesting resolution to naming a child. Both parents wanted the child named after a, each one their own relative. One was Meir and one was Uri. And so he said the name Schneur, um Shnei means two, and Ur means light, which both Meir and Uri, and Uri share in common. And therefore, if you call him, so to speak, double light, you are naming him both after Meir and after Uri. So he wasn't particular that the name be an exact continuation, but that the concept is incorporated into the name. And um, I was recently with uh, Rabbi Leff a number of months ago, and somebody called a bris that was happening a day or two later and you know they had a, a difficulty in coming up with a name both sides wanted something else and he advised to follow the marshal's approach in the general sense and that's to yeah. make up a new name like he did or to give a half a name or in or other the words the concept means, yeah, yeah. And in the Yamshal Shlomer, he also notes many parallels between marriage, the, the chuppah, and when we were at Mount Sinai, so that he says the breaking of the glass represents the breaking of the tablets of stone of the luchas. Oh. That's the reason he gives for that in Ksubus. Uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, so, you know, there, there are many halachic insights that he provides. So far, I think, a snapshot of the marshal. Now we will deal with the Ramah. Yes, they were first cousins once removed. In other words, the Ramah was one generation lower down. And in fact, they have written exchanges of which three responses are the most famous, we'll 
get to that. Uh, but first, a, a brief overview. So the Rameau was born into a wealthy and uh, communally well-connected family in Krakow, which at the time was the capital of Poland. The Rameau was one of seven, uh, four boys and three girls. And in his teenage years, his father sent him to the famous yeshiva in Lublin of Rabsholom Shachna. And his cousin, the Marshal, was there at the time. And the Ramon marries the daughter of Rabsholom Shachna, of the Rosh Hashiva. In 1552, he went through three tragedies in a very short period of time. His mother dies, his wife dies, and his father's mother, his grandmother, dies. And all happened during a plague in Krakow between 1551 and 1552. Um, Hundreds of people passed away, hundreds of Jews in the community, and bear in mind that the the entire community had, you know, 2,000 Jews. And it was as a result of these tragedies that the father of the Ramal built the famous shul. And, you know, people do things when somebody passes away in memory of or as a merit for the person who's passed away. And, you know, people think quite short term this will be for the next few years. And now in this case, this is a shawl built in memory of his family. It's been host to 400 years of prayer, hundreds of thousands of hours, tefillah and Torah. Uh, it's an unbelievable merit. Is there any writings on the shul that say that it's in Absolutely. this Absolutely. The, the only piece in the shul that's still original is the plaque of Rabbi Yisrael ben Rabbi Yosef of the Ramah's father. It's still on the side wall there in the main shul. Oh, you're telling me nothing else is genuine? That no, just ruined my been, experience. It's been renovated. Right. Uh, I mean, the walls, the outer walls of the Oran Kodesh, yes, and the, the physical layout of most of the shul, but, you know, like the furniture and right, uh, really all that is, yeah. Where's the plaque? Is it outside? No, no, no. In the main shawl itself. Oh. So it's clearly worth uh, doing things in memory of others. One never knows how long and uh, how far these things stretch. So the Ramah had various children, one of whom, a daughter of his, and her husband traveled to Eretz Yisrael and settled in Tzvas. And the Ramah remarried, and he will stay in Krakow until he dies in 1572. I heard once that, you might laugh at this, but the, that the Ramah lived for 33 years. He wrote for 33 Svarim, and he died on the 33rd day of the Oman, like Baomer. Is there, is there any truth to that? Or is that like a, a mother's tale I grew up on? So, uh, yeah, you're definitely not the only one to have heard <laughs> this. It often makes the rounds. Most of it is untrue. I knew you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, the only thing that is absolutely verifiably correct is that he died on 33, on Lagba Omer. Uh, but he didn't die in the year Lumad Gimel. Shin Lamad Gimel, which would have been 1573, he died in Lamad Base in 1572, and he definitely lived longer than 33 years, although it's not clear when he was born, but we know he must have lived longer than 33 for various reasons. 
the most obvious is that there is a famous truva written by him on the issue of copyright because you know as we mentioned this is the early years of printing it's the first time that copyright copyright you know is a fact that needs to be dealt with you know maybe we'll do a series on printing and censorship and then we can explain the whole story of his response which had enormous effect in italy um but either way in this response he signs off as the year 1551 which is 21 years before he died and if he was 33 when he died then he would have been 11 or 12 when he wrote this um and given that in it he writes you know and this will be accepted by all communities I don't think that some Maybe kid, he was just very confident. Right, yeah, under bar mitzvah. <laughs> yeah, far, far from, you know, being possible. Although it's interesting, within the response, it says that it is Yom Aleph, a Sunday, the fourth day of Elul. And the fourth of Elul can never be a Sunday, which the Chidot remarks on in the late 1700s. And he says it's the fifth of Elul because, you know, the difference in writing a dullard and a hay is just one little line. And this was, you know, a transcribed error. So we still have to work out when he was born. The consensus is that he was in Krakow as the rabbi for at least 20 years because around 1551 he was already in town his wife who died is buried in the cemetery there which was opened only in Shin Yudalov in 1551 and that would presume that he lived till at least 40 because you know he must have been 19 at least to become the rabbi there and that would give his birth date as around 1530 and one of his famous pupils Rabdovid Gantz who lived later in Prague he's buried there uh, wrote that Ramosha Isilis was able to teach uh, pupils and Torah in Krakow for around 20 years, which works. <laughs> You've definitely done your homework. <laughs> right. But it's still not conclusive because there's an argument that he was born at least five years before that, perhaps even 10, because in the various eulogies, the various hespedim that were given for the Ramah when he died in 1572 by people who knew him, like Rubdovid Gantz, like Rub Shmuel Katzenellenbogen, the son of the Maram Padua, who was also a cousin, none of them mentioned that he died young. And if he would have been 42, they would have mentioned it. So the mid-1520s is probably his date of birth. How long did people live for around that time? So the, the averages are very misleading because of child mortality. And therefore, you do find people living much longer. The Maral, for instance. Interestingly about the Maral, we also don't know exactly when he was born, possibly the same year as the Ramon. He dies in 1609. So he would have been in his 70s, maybe in his 80s. It wasn't unheard of, um, but it's difficult to, to figure out the averages. Now, because the Ramon died on Lagba Omer, Thousands of people used to come to his grave and pray down that day, right up until World War II. In fact, there are photos of this in the 1930s. There's somebody selling tickets in order to get into the cemetery in order to pray there. You know, wow. the community cashed in. Although, interestingly, the, the, the cemetery 
looks a mess. I mean, they, they, obviously all the tombstones are there, but, you know, there's grass growing, uh, which is quite unusual given how many um, important personalities were buried there and therefore how many people would have come to pray there. Until today, there's quite a gathering on Lake Boma there. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, not not Moron, but... Uh, yes, yeah, I uh, was once there on Lagba Omer when there were three Minyanim for Shacharis in the Ramah Shul. Most of the congregants to those Minyanim were Hasidim, <laughs> but everyone was davening Nusach Ashkenaz. This is the Ramah's Shul, right? You know, you cannot mess. This is quite <laughs> clearly the Nusach. You know, this is not a place where the Sussvard ever uh, <laughs> made its entry. Interesting. We need perhaps to spend uh, a few minutes explaining the most famous work that the Ramah wrote and the one that he wrote in preparation for that almost, the, the Darke Moshe, which is in many ways a lengthier element of the same. So, living in Tzvas, in Israel, at the same time as the Ramal was in Krakow, was Rabbi Yosef Karo, who became known as the author of the Shulchan Aruch. Now, both of them were independently working on a uh, halachic encyclopedia, like the Rambam's work of uh, 350 years earlier, but one that only incorporated the laws that are still practiced nowadays, as opposed to the all the 613, so there's less, there's 295 of them. And Rabbi Yosef Cairo published his first commentary, and when the Ramal became aware of this, he faced a choice. He could either, so to speak, ignore it and create a parallel safer, or could make the extraordinary choice, which to proved to be uh, exceptionally uh, fortuitous and selfless on behalf of the Jewish people, and that is to subsume his writings into the Shulchan Aruch, almost as a commentary. And therefore, rather than create two separate books, his opinions would be incorporated within the writings of the Shulchan Aruch in any halachic decisions that he disagreed with the main Shulchan Aruch over. Um, so primarily, not exclusively, but primarily the Shulchan Aruch himself based himself on Svaradi Poskim, especially the uh, the triumvirate of, uh, you know, the Rosh, Rosh the, well, the, in order, the, the, the Rif, the Rambam and the Rosh, and gave far less uh, space to Rashi and the authors of Tosavos. And therefore it has developed that Ashkenazi opinion tends to be found in the Ramaz section, incorporating these uh, Ashkenazi authors, and Svaradi opinion is in the main text of the Shulchan Aruch. Although it has to be said, and it needs to be said, that there are times where the Shulchan Aruch follows Rashi, and when the Ramah follows the Rambam. Um, and there are times where the Ramah is not troubled by, so to speak, following the Svaradim, and doesn't bring a particularly Ashkenazi flavor to a specific halacha. And the advantage of now having both of these authors within one work is that it can become the standard book of halacha. Uh, although we'll see uh, next time that there was tremendous opposition to this when it uh, first emerged. Um, you, you answered most of the 33 myth uh, tale that I gave you before. Um, 
But did the Ramal write 33 Svarim? Did he write 33 works in his lifetime? So he wrote um, more, I would even say many more, than he's classically known for. Uh, but unless many manuscripts which are sort of unmentioned were lost, it is probably nearer 10 than 33. So it sounds like this whole thing was baked up by Jewish mothers wanting the most out of their children. You know, look, look what he did at the age of 33. <laughs> or to drum up tourism on Lugba Omer once they were there, the tour guide taking them around in the you know 1870s or 1930s. Selling 33 merchandise. Right, and... exactly. Um, so he wrote a commentary on the Zahar. He wrote a sefer called Teras Ha'oilo, which is a work that explains the vessels in the Besamekdosh in the temple and was unusual, is unusual, because it combines extracts from the Rambam's philosophical work, the Mirnavuchim, with Kabbalistic ideas. So, you know, two disciplines that are normally seen as incompatible with one another are quoted here uh, side by side. And in fact, in the very first chapter of Shulchan Aruch, almost the opening line, the Ramah quotes the Rambam in Mirunavuchim. So you have uh, an Ashkenazi Pesach bringing the philosophy of the Rambam to the fore. And then there is obviously the Ramah's responsa. Um, we only have 132, which is a small percentage of how many he actually wrote. Uh, but they were printed 68 years after he died, um, unusually. So uh, some were, I assume, lost, and some he didn't have copies of because they'd been sent um, out to, to people. And in the final uh, response that we have, he mentions that the Shulchan Aruch has already been printed in Krakow. So his work and Rabius of Cairo, the, the uh, bringing together the blending of the two, uh, at least the section dealing with Arachim, had been printed in their lifetimes. Can you tell us a few of his writings, maybe, that of, of interest? So... Um, I'll, well, I'll mention one, and I'll mention a safer, another safer that I haven't dealt with yet that's appropriate for this time of year. Um, Truva Mem Allah, 41, deals with the son of an apostate who had you know, given up, the father had given up on Judaism and uh, become a Christian, and the son wants to know whether he can be called up to the Torah using his father's name. And um, even though the Ramah actually felt it would be better that the grandfather's name was used, he says that since the venerable sage has decided otherwise, he will follow that ruling. Um, and he's referring to his cousin, the Maram Padua, another mutual cousin with him in the Marshal. Um, and there is a, a safer that he wrote as a commentary on Megillus Esther, so appropriate to this time of year. Um, he uses the entire narrative as um, allegory to the sort of purpose of life. Um, one person represents the intellect, another the desires, and all seen through the various uh, verses and personalities. And the reason he wrote it is because he fled Krakow when there was another plague, this time in 1557, and he left without sort of any of his belongings. So he found himself on Purim without the means of sending Mishlach Monas to his father. 
So instead, he sent him the book called Mechir Yayin, and he writes at the end, you know, um, I, Moshe, son of my father Yisrael, the, who was the great uh, custodian of the Krakow community, I'm in exile, and therefore I'm sending this to replace what I would normally do. Um, and uh, combining uh, this issue together with halacha, the Ramal deals with various financial questions and obligations that arise from a sudden plague. For instance, if a person had hired a teacher for the year, suddenly was unable to fulfill his contract, or rented an apartment, and then the plague breaks out. Do we consider the individual liable, or do we say that uh, what would be called in insurance terms an act of God um, has occurred, and therefore you're not liable? And in fact, many of these and similar responses are written on these issues at the time have been used very recently with regards to COVID. It was a sudden plague, and the question is what liability is like. You've paid for, you know, your kid to go to kindergarten. It's a private uh, institution. What happens now? Right. Uh, you mentioned the Ramah and the Maushal. They corresponded. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So the Ramah opens... Um, one of his early responsa by praising his older cousin and you know he compares him to the sages of the Talmud um, but they are clearly in the middle of correspondence already because he maintains his point of view and at one stage brings a statement from Aristotle as a proof <laughs> that's daring right and the Aristotle is quoted I believe by the Rambam Merivochim the Marshal receives this letter and hits the roof. Hmm. Um, now, he's writing in rhyme, so um, English won't do it justice. But he says, you know, I've received this letter and I felt as if a knife has just pierced my flesh. <laughs> and then he goes on in this same truva to mention the issue of grammar. Because for the Marshal, as we said, he examines all the texts of the Talmud and uh, amends them when necessary. So he needed, beyond everything else, to be a, a an expert grammarian. His younger cousin, the Ramah, was not. And he is unhappy that the Ramah has neglected hmm. Dikduk. And he writes in this responsum, you confuse masculine and feminine, singular and plural. Um, and the Ramah responds by saying, listen... I don't do so when it comes to something important like a get. I make sure that that's correct. And in all other areas, the most important thing is getting the right prout, you know, making sure that I've understood and responded correctly. And he says, you know, I'm not necessarily proud of this fact, but since I don't have a scribe who can copy things, therefore I write Masha Oile Belibi as it occurs to me. <laughs> and the Marshal ends off by saying, and I'll quote, Saif Dovar the end of matters, and the makabal alai mehayoyim I uh, take upon myself from today, that my love for you uh, shall be, you know, a permanent feature within my heart. So that's uh, interesting historical correspondence between two cousins. Makes them more personable. Yes. Um, two unusual stories to close. Um, the Marshal writes in the introduction to his Sefer Yamshel Shlema, that once, uh, via a candle that I lit for a mitzvah, 
um, Hashem encouraged me and I was informed, so to speak, that, you know, God is happy with my studies. Now, the, the Kava Yashar, who, who lived in the 1600s, so not long after Marshall, Marshall died, writes that he heard from his teacher um, the explanation behind this. One night, the Marshal was learning and writing and only had a small candle. And it would have burnt out in a short time, but miraculously burnt for several hours more. And this is what Marshal refers to when he says that Hashem is happy with his Torah. Wow. It's personal nice Hanukkah. Yep. In fact, I think possibly that's how the Kavayosha actually defines it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Ramah, um, he corresponded with Rabbi Yosef Cairo in Tzvas. It's not just that they had their commentaries ending up in one book, but they corresponded. And he asked Rabbi Yosef Cairo to send him the complete text of a kosher Sefer Torah, uh, which Rabbi Yosef Cairo did, including the parchment for Sefer Torah. And this Sefer Torah was still being used in the Ramashal in the 1930s. Uh, I know somebody who told me that his father was there in the shul, when it was being used, and by then, they would only use it once a year for Mincha on Yom Kippur. Well, do we know what happened to it? Uh, yes, it's a very interesting and ultimately somewhat tragic story. It came to Eretz Israel before the war, and then there was a fire in the place that it was stored, so about half of it was burnt. We still have half of that Sefer Torah. Wow. In Yerushalayim. So, um, all in all, dealing with the Ramah and the Marshal, um, the first two rabbis in Poland that we discussed last week, Rabbi Yaakov Pollock and uh, Rabbi Shalom Shachna, left no Svarim. In fact, Rabbi Shalom Shachna's son records that his father forbade his books and responses to be printed, and the Ramah refers to this in one of his truvas. Uh, because they didn't want to be codifiers and they didn't want to set a particular path for future generations in Poland. But their two main Talmidim did exactly that and became famous for doing that. So it's interesting how the Talmidim learnt from their teachers but still struck out on their own. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. Um, That brings episode two to a close. Next week... Next week, there won't be a... um, I was going to say, you're you're flying away, aren't you? Rabbi Tatz and myself are running a trip over Shabbos in Prague, this Shabbos. So we won't be recording next week, uh, but uh, hopefully the week after. That's exciting. Any new things on the itinerary or... That we're going to do while we're out in Prague. Yeah. Or same old, same old. Uh, Well, we've managed to get certain places open that um, are closed officially. So that should be interesting. We're looking forward for an in-depth review, maybe a special when you get back. So we'll see you in two weeks. This is going to be one little break. Thank you very much indeed. So for next week, you could just listen to Du Chazar on your history, because Robert Hirsch will be testing at some point everyone's knowledge. Thank you. And as usual, any comments or feedback can be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Robert Hirsch. Thank you.